Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. goes first to, to Edward Alden, who joins us now from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, D.C. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, author of Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy, an expert on trade policies. We approached the beginning of uh, renegotiation talks on NAFTA. And Ted, let me ask you, first of all, about the use of trade as a weapon, an offensive or a defensive weapon. Bloomberg News reporting yesterday that the, the, the administration is elected to Wait a while here uh, on an investigation into intellectual property violations that may or may not have occurred with, with China because of China's willingness to vote with the U.S. and the U.N. Security Council over the weekend. 15 to 0 was the vote there on new sanctions on, on North Korea. Have we seen this before, uh, that being trade policy used as a, as a device of foreign policy? Oh, yeah, very much, uh, David. And, and in fact, it was one of the things that uh, President Trump criticized as a candidate, which which is that the United States does have a long record of sometimes putting its trade and economic concerns on the back burner because it has bigger diplomatic fish to fry. If you look at our trade relations with Japan over many years, there's no question that that, uh, that Japan got advantages from the United States because it was such an important ally in Asia. So, so this kind of thing happens all the time. What's a bit different is the president being quite so explicit about it, having said to China, look, if you help us out on North Korea, we might go easier with you on trade. Uh, you rarely hear presidents be, uh, be quite that uh, forthright about what it is they're doing. Ted Allen, help us understand the, the importance of the trade relationship between China and North Korea. These sanctions amount to about a billion dollars in total. Uh, this is not a, a – that, that's very sizable for North Korea here. Ex- explain the, the importance of that particular trade relationship and, and the role that China is playing here. Well, I mean, China and to a lesser extent Russia, those are North Korea's primary markets for uh, for the country's exports. Um, what was significant about the UN sanctions is that is that they're going to bite on major raw materials exports coming out of North Korea. And if fully implemented, will squeeze the North Korean economy to a degree we have not seen in the past. That said, there's a long history of China uh, looking the other way and allowing a lot of this trade uh, to continue despite uh, formal sanctions being in place. So I think the real question here will be whether China is worried enough about the current situation and believes that sanctions might actually uh, put North Korea on a, on a slightly less volatile path. And we're just going to have to watch how that plays out. Ted Alden with the Council on Foreign Relations here with us on Bloomberg Surveillance. Ted, I know you're looking ahead to August the 16th. That's when negotiations over NAFTA are set to, to begin. What do we know about what's on the table? We got this, I think, 18-page report from the U.S. Trade Representative outlining sort of what the, uh, the, 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 the ideal agenda items would be. What's the, what's the administration said about what they hope to accomplish during these talks? Yeah, we know quite a lot now, actually, from all three countries. So I I would put the U.S. asks into kind of three buckets. Um, One is things that were already done in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the deal with Asia that President Trump walked away from. Uh, Digital trade is a good example, new rules for digital trade, which are very important. Uh, Restricting state-owned enterprises, looking at the issue of currency manipulation, uh, labor and environmental standards. A lot of that uh, was on the table at TPP. Um, There's a kind of second bucket, which is hard issues within NAFTA. A lot of those have to do with dispute settlement, uh, 
the uh, Trump administration believes that American sovereignty has been compromised in various ways by these arrangements. Uh, government procurement, uh, Trump administration wants to expand by America. And then there's a third basket, which I think nobody's kind of paying attention to, which is all the industries that didn't get as good a deal as they wanted out of NAFTA and are now going to come out of the woodwork and say, this is our opportunity to make it better. You mentioned the the TPP. How much of that is is a framework for this administration's trade policy mm-hmm. going forward? Are they electing not to to sign on to that deal, um, but is it still the framework for for where things are headed? Yeah, if you I mean, if you look at that uh, the proposal from USTR and the negotiating objectives, an awful lot of the language is straight out of TPP and 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 does make the president's action on TPP looked much more questionable. I mean, we were talking about China earlier as well. TPP would have been a great way to pressure China on uh, on trade issues. So I think the reality is that there are things that the United States wants for its own economic interests, particularly helping our advanced industries of one sort or another in the technology and digital space. And a lot of that was done in TPP, and now the administration is going to have to redo it on a smaller scale in the NAFTA renegotiations. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, David Gurr and Tom Keene with Brickland Wire of uh, BMP Paribas. Futures deteriorate, negative 8, Dow futures at negative 25, and the VIX, which, oh, was 9 out to a 10 jumped up to 11.5, 11.6, is now up to 12.17. That VIX move through the morning is a big 1.21 VIX points. That's a big move, given what we've seen through August and July uh, in the quiet of the markets. I guess what else I'm looking at, David? 109.85 on yen, strong yen uh, this morning, 0.47 uh, figures on yen uh, as well. Uh, Bricklin, how open is the U.S. economy? How much is our export and our import economy? Getting ahead of ourselves here. Ted Alden first. Dicklin uh, try his next. Next slide. Oh, Excuse no, me. No, no, no. Hey, I, 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 I can try to be Bricklin. Play the role. Play the role. <laughs> That's what happens when I walk in late. David, continue, please. No, I just I, let, let, let's let's uh, before we before we get into that question, let me let me ask you just about the digital economy. You've mentioned that uh, here, you're talking about NAFTA renegotiations, and it's something that I talked about with uh, your now colleague uh, Ambassador Michael Froman at the Council on on Foreign Relations. A lot has changed here in the 23 years uh, that have intervened here between uh, when, when NAFTA was ratified and where we are uh, today. How how desperate is is the need to change trade policy because of innovations in the information space? Oh, I, I mean, I think it's pretty desperate, right? I mean, NAFTA was was ratified in you know back in the mid 1990s. That was before the internet, you know, long before smartphones and all the other things we take for granted. If you look at at, at the most successful dynamic companies in the United States, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, you know, these companies didn't exist when when NAFTA was negotiated. So I think even if it weren't in this this political context of Trump having won the election in part on promising to renegotiate NAFTA, I think there clearly is a need to update the NAFTA. Mexico and Canada are, you know, our our first and third largest trading partners. So there's a lot of work that that should have been done under any circumstances to make this a better, more modern deal. Help us understand who the principals are here. Who's going to be at the negotiating table? I read that the chief negotiator here on NAFTA uh, is somebody who's been with the U.S. Trade Representative's office for for well over a decade. He's a he's a career member of the the, the, the U.S. Trade Representative's office. Uh, what difference does that make? And and uh, what, what do you expect? How political do you expect these negotiations to be? Ten. Well, I think they will probably, at least at the outset, be less political than people think because these negotiations are extraordinarily complicated. You know, Canada, the United States, and Mexico have all 
all appointed, experienced expert negotiators who understand the ins and outs of everything from, you know, digital trade to textiles to autos to agriculture. Um, a lot of these are, are hard grinding sort of issues. That's, that's why I think this notion that we're going to do a quick renegotiation is just a fantasy. This is going to be an extremely complex and difficult negotiation. And I think it's going to take a lot longer than than people think. And the fact that you've got professionals in, in each of the three countries running it uh, is, is evidence of, of, of how serious uh, all three countries are taking it. Ted, thank you for stopping by today. <laughs> Good to be with Ted you. Ted Alden with us. His, very importantly, folks, his book, Failure to Justice, fabulous on United States trade and with a paperback coming out uh, here in a bit with an update on the 45th president of the United States. His name is Ted Alden. <laughs> David Gura got that right. I did not. That's what happens. When you stay up late last night watching Yankee baseball, <laughs> torture that I had to go through. Anyway, Ted Alden with us, the Council on Foreign Relations. Moffat Nathanson is a phrase in media of great respect. Michael Nathanson, out of Brandeis, legendary at Sanford Bernstein, in a weak moment decided to join Craig Moffat or Moffat joined Nathanson. No one knows. But anyways, we are honored to have in our studios today Michael Nathanson. I think we covered today a lot, Michael, the news on uh, Disney and Netflix. I want to bring up the name Jeffrey Immelt. You build GE and things happen, and all of a sudden they're going, you know, Jeff, maybe we need a new pair of eyes. Is Iger getting out in front of margin reduction? Is Mr. Iger getting out in front of a board that's going to go, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah, that's a good question. I think he's getting out in front of the changes that you and I are observing in the marketplace, which are going to lead to more investment spending in the near term. So taking that question is, yeah, Bob is saying, we cannot stay in the path we're on now. It's gonna. It's not going to be the optimal solution. So we have to spend. He did this when he got there. He bought Pixar his first, his almost first month on the job. That was an admission that Disney needed to change the entire culture. So Bob has done this before, and I think this is the right path for Disney. It may not be pretty in the near term versus what we expected, but it's the right thing to do for the long-term health of the company. Do they have the luxury of a timeline to 18, 19? When I see margin erosion in two of three businesses, is the truth here they really got to get this done faster? It's, it's, it's funny you ask that. In 18 and 19, Disney actually sets up well because of their content slate. In 20, you're going to laugh at me, in 2021, there's a new NFL deal that comes in. For, there's a new negotiation. And the question is, what's going to happen to that NFL deal? So it's really about 21 and beyond. The next couple of years at Disney have, has enough engines kicking into parks and, and, the, and movie, you know, movies. Yeah, I know. Yeah, the, the movies are – David, girl, help us here because you're the only <laughs> one watching Disney movies anymore. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I get the idea the movies are predictable. Right. I'm looking at margin erosion that at any other company in America right. would stop traffic. But Tom, this was a bad this was a bad year. Here's why this was a bad year. There was a new NBA contract. It cost six hundred million dollars more this year than last year. That's a one time hit to this year's numbers. Yeah. Absent that hit, Disney's ESPN growth is modestly zero plus minus one, two percent. You know, it's so that's the outlook for the next one or two years. The problem is when the step ups come again on the NFL. 
what is your base of revenues, right? What are you going to do to your base? And if he stays on the path he's on now, he's going to have a much smaller base of revenues to bid for the contract, right? That's his problem. Help us understand the timing here vis-a-vis Mr. Iger. He just had his contract renewed. Seems like everybody loves Bob Iger within the, the Disney world. Why do this now? Why why respond, as he said, to what's happening in the marketplace? Why didn't this happen earlier uh, why not wait to see how, how another company fares trying to do what he's trying to do? Because it's the Walt Disney Company, uh-huh. and Bob feels like, you know, that that company is going to be a survivor. And you could do one or two things. You could sell the way that scripts are sold, Time Warner sold, or you could stay and fight. And it's a Walt Disney Company. They look at this as we've got a 100-year history. We've got brands. We have consumer connections. Why can't we do this? And Bob has never been a short-term quarter-to-quarter guy, and he has to do this now. It's the right thing to do for the company. And probably going to be tested by 2022. 20. It's, it's a three or four year question whether or not it's going to work, but it's the right thing to do. What's going to happen with, with sports rights? I look at the, the, the ever escalating cost of getting the NBA contract or the NFL yep. uh, contract. You look at what's been happening with ESPN. There's, uh, you know, I guess not, not a whole lot of grounds for optimism there. Are, are, is the price of all this going to continue to go up? And, and how is Disney, how are other companies going to deal with that? It's, no. That's something that we always talk about the value of sports and how the companies that own sports right now are the place you want to invest in. The Achilles heel, that, that thesis is, well, in 2021 and beyond, there's going to be another cycle. That's going to be a problem, right? What's going to stop an Amazon, maybe Netflix one day, YouTube, from bidding on the next set of rights, right? That is going to be a problem. Um, it's really the NFL. And the NFL, it's interesting, Disney pays a billion nine for 17 Monday Night Football games that I would say to you, should not be re-extended at that price. The, those games are lo- lower rated than they ever have been. Will Disney walk away from the NFL? Will they move to a Sunday night package, right? So that is going to be, in two, three years, the biggest questions of, of the sector is like, what's going to be the next cycle of cost? And it's the glue we have in our sector. And I think you're going to have massive inflation the next time you, you go around, which will lead to more margin pressure. And more need to find other ways to grow revenues. It's just there's no, right. there's no way around it. How does cable TV respond to this? How does Mr. Roberts over his morning cup of coffee, looking at the collapse of the Philadelphia Phillies, how does Mr. <laughs> Roberts adapt and adjust to what Iger wrought? Okay, so that's that's Craig's world, but I think he'll allow me to answer no, that question. Come on. It's okay. off at Nathan. <laughs> exactly. That's why so, he came in here. So exactly. Right exactly. Okay, so basically, I think what Brian Roberts and Comcast and Cable do will say, look, we own the broad broadband pipe to the home, the best broadband pipe. As more content goes over the internet, we've got broadband pricing, we have a unique offering. On the video front, they may start becoming indifferent as to how you and David and I get our content, right? They may let these companies go over the top and just integrate it at your TV set. So they may trade the profit they make in TV for profit they make in broadband and allow the media companies to work their way around what's been a set-top box, closed-end system for many years. Do you have confidence that cable TV as we know it will exist in 10 years, 30-second ads? Maybe we go to 15-second ads. How will we get the CBS News? How will we get PBS and C-SPAN? Well, it's going to look a lot like the paper business, where we have some people who prefer the printed copy like you have in your desk right now. And the majority of people may not. So I think you're going to have to have two models, right? One model that's direct to consumer and one that's going to be the big bundle delivered the old-fashioned way. Uh, where is the, the creativity and content uh, today? You look at what's successful for Disney. Uh, it's the, the, the Marvel franchise. It's these these big sequels and beyond sequels. Triquels? What, right. <laughs> what do you call it? Right, right, right. Uh, where, where do you see creativity in content today? Where's that coming from? Is a company like Disney equipped to do things that are 
capital C creative? Well, let's divide that question into television and film. Sure. It's clear that television's never had a better cycle of content creation, and that TV has replaced movies for, play, for developers of great content. On the film side, we are really worried. Disney's the exclusion to the rule, but we're very worried about the health of the film business because it's all been about sequels and global tentpoles and just redundant you know, copies of, of kind of the same script. So I think on the film side, everyone but Disney has real challenges to find unique content. TV has replaced film, right? So in HBO, Showtime, Netflix, extent, they, they've yeah. got those developers, but film's a, a big problem. What's TV going to look like? I mean, you must be thinking about this day in and day out, but in light of the news that we got yesterday from Disney, the way they intend to do this, if you get every other uh, film studio entertainment company pursuing this kind of approach, what is the device, what is our engagement with that device look like in five, ten years? Okay, so we see the device being there'll be a connected box in your house for live, live content, and we're not going to trust the Internet to deliver 90 million home streaming Eagles games, right? We're going to get we, – we're going to need to pay for live TV. And the companies that have live assets will benefit in live. But for the vast majority of the rest of the networks out there who are living on kind of channel surfing, mm -hmm. they're going to have a problem because we're going to also go to on-demand, right? You're going to basically bifurcate into an on-demand world, live world, and that middle will just drop away, right? And that's what's going to happen. Do it's the be profits very... drop away? Does free cash flow drop away? For some of these companies, yeah. yeah. For the people in the middle, it's going to well, drop away. Well, mean, look, we, we have sales on AMC networks. We have sales on Discovery. And up until that deal last week, we had a sell on scripts. So we thought the cable network universe, a pure play. What about the CBS world, the Bucus world? Well, CBS, CBS will be fine because CBS is going to collect a higher toll from the distributors, right? They're going to say the value of our content yeah, is okay. underpriced, yeah. right? But it's, Tom, it's the middle on, you know, on the dial that basically was, was just filling time mm -hmm. as we channel well, surfed. This has been wonderful. Michael Nathanson making a huge effort to get in here. Yeah. Really, in really studio. appreciate it. <laughs> exactly. Off of this seismic announcement by Dizzy, Mr. Nathanson is with Moffat Nathanson. Again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. No, I'm not going to send out the black book from Michael Nathanson. Much to talk about this morning. David, what are your thoughts as we look at taking the official surveillance nap that we both take every afternoon and <laughs> Do that waking up to? Do that at your own peril. I was filling in for you maybe slow. two Mondays ago, and that was when the uh, Anthony Scaramucci uh, news broke. So I had a taste of what you must experience mm. every day, you getting up so early and uh, trying to sleep yeah. as you can. But, uh, you know, I, I obviously continuing to watch what's happening uh, in, in the Asia-Pacific mm. region. In light of the tweets we've seen this morning and the, the hot rhetoric conveyed via mm. official statements from the president here uh, and from the leader of North Korea yeah. uh, as well, it's making a diplomatic option return to the negotiation Negotiating table look yeah. like a, a farther off and farther off thing. David, you do the politics here, but I want to say that we have made every effort to speak to our military, including the great services of James Stravitas of Fletcher School Tufts, former Admiral Navy, uh, and much can be same of Wesley Clark. He's been much more visible, but what I think is so important in introduction is General Clark, you were first in your class at West Point. How did you do that? How did you go into the Lincoln Building overlooking the Hudson and defeat the rest of the troops? Well, it wasn't really a defeat. I mean, I was I really enjoyed. I love being there. I love the officers that mentored me and helped me, and uh, mm -hmm. it was a privilege to be with my class. It was a. I have been very privileged to had a great education in high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, and it's to be in good staff. 
General Clark, let me ask you how much this situation has changed, the situation with regard to, to North Korea. Uh, since you were, were uh, serving general, uh, of course, we've had the test, these two tests of these intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, and a new round of sanctions, I think the eighth round of sanctions from the U.N. Security Council. How much has this story changed as you've watched it unfold? So in 1994, I was in the Joint Staff and I was part of the team that helped do the uh, response to the North Korean nuclear crisis at that time. And we came out of it with a negotiated settlement to provide two nuclear reactors. At that time, North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons, but they did have a very, very powerful conventional artillery system and rockets that could have devastated South Korea and could have struck Japan. And they did have biological and chemical weapons. So we wanted to head off their nuclear challenge. We did it by promising them two uh, nuclear reactors for electric power, that's what they said they really wanted, and fuel oil to sustain their electricity grid until the reactors came online. Um, There was a lot of fumbling around once the agreement was negotiated. Uh, People had money at the South Koreans, the Japanese. We had to put some money up. It had to go through Congress. Congress had to appropriate money for the fuel oil. Mm. People didn't like the North Koreans. They didn't like us, blah, blah, blah. And they probably didn't trust us, and then we didn't trust them. And we knew by 2002 that North Korea was the highest risk for nuclear proliferation. But instead, we invaded Iraq on the theory that what if we woke up and they had a nuclear weapon? Uh But we knew Korea was high risk for developing it. So we've lived for decades with the problem that there's no good military option for Korea. Even in the early 1990s, if you'd attacked North Korea, they would have had 10,000 pieces of artillery. They could have rained thousands of rounds of chemical warheads and other things into South Korea, a million-man army, 100,000 special forces troops inserted by many subs and, uh, and, and, and small aircraft, uh, guerrilla operations all over the country. It would have been a mess. It was no easy solution, and it's still the same, only worse now because they do have nuclear warheads. General Clark, we, we, we've had a couple of moments here in recent history when the president has tweeted something that uh, could have potentially huge ramifications. I think just a couple of weeks ago when he tweeted about uh, whether or not to allow transgender individuals to serve in the, in the U.S. military. Uh, there was a lot of questioning about the nuance uh, or the lack thereof in those tweets. Today there were some more tweets about uh, North Korea and our nuclear arsenal. Go back to when you were serving, when you were a general. How would you have reacted to, to the tweets like the ones you've seen uh, today? You've you got to imagine uh, that Secretary Mattis, that John Kelly, uh, others uh, in that upper echelon of, of, of the administration can't be happy with, with what's being communicated via social media today. Well, probably not, but you're not going to react to tweets. The American public might react, foreign governments might react, but the military chain of command reacts to orders that come down the chain of command. So they're coming through General or through Secretary Jim Madden. So they're not coming directly from a tweet. General, you have been balanced in your support of the legacy of Ike and also of Harry Truman. You are identified, I would believe, by most Americans as a Democrat. What is the Wesley Clark prescription for the Democratic Party forward? Well, you're asking something that's beyond North Korea. 
But we've got to focus on the Democratic Party has to focus on economic growth. We've got to have infrastructure. We've got to use our uh, oil industry and maximize our production of energy now and then transition through uh, a some form of incentive. It could be a carbon tax and move us into a uh, a non uh, hydrocarbon mm-hmm. economy in the 20 to 30 year time frame. We need a model like the renewable fuel standard, and it would be a tremendous job creating uh, uh, exercise to do that. So it's it's build U.S. economic strength. That's the greatest thing we could do to strengthen America. Mm, It's not about our military forces. General Clark, great to speak with you this morning. Honored to speak with you. I hope we can talk again soon. That's it. General Wesley Clark, retired General Wesley Clark, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, joining us on our phone lines. He's from the 4th District of Oklahoma, the congressman from Oklahoma, Tom Cole, I think it's fair to say anybody that listens to this show knows how what a joy it is to have the historian and the academic uh, Congressman Cole on the phone. Uh, Tom, I'm going to go to you as a card-carrying Republican of what I see uh, today on the cover of the New York Times. The headline is, they will be met with fire and fury. I paid a lot more attention to the follow-on statement, like the world is never seen how can you and Republican leadership give a history lesson to the president of the United States? What do we need to do to get scope and scale so we don't see a phrase like the world has never seen? Well, I think, uh, look, I think the president is trying to be very direct in his communication to North Korea. Uh, it's a, you know, impenetrable regime. And uh, I think he just wanted to be crystal clear. But uh, I don't find the phrase as disturbing as some. Uh, because I look at the people that are around the president. I look at a, a, a chief of staff like John Kelly. I look at Secretary Mattis. I look at, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Tillerson. I look at Henry McMaster. And I think he's got probably the best foreign policy uh, slash defense team of any modern right. president. And so I think, uh, I think you know, uh, he's not going to take precipitous or rash action. James Stravitas in Bloomberg View today, the admiral from Tufts School, Fletcher, Uh, Fletcher School at Tufts University makes it very clear that we need a military presence, but bluster won't do it. What will Mattis, what will Kelly, what will McMaster message to the president? I think very much the same thing. I mean, frankly, uh, uh, Admiral Stravatis, I I met when he was actually commander in NATO. He's a a brilliant uh, soldier, but he's also a contemporary of Mattis, McMaster, and Kelly. So these are people that have served together, that know one another, that think highly of one another. And I think, uh, you know, the admiral's expressing a perfectly appropriate point that, uh, uh, look, we're going to, you know, back up what we say, but we're not trying to be provocative. But we do want the North Koreans to understand that we're serious. And frankly, we want the Chinese to understand we're serious. And I think uh, that's something that's lost in all this. Uh, This may be as much about pressuring the Chinese and reminding them to keep the commitments that they made uh, when they voted for UN sanctions as anything else. We know we need them uh, as a pressure point on North Korea. And frankly, they've responded to President Trump uh, more than they have to any previous American president on this. Does it make a difference to you being outside of Washington and all as all this is happening? Of course, Congress on recess, the Senate on recess uh, as well. And it seems like things are, are heating up here. The Secretary of State uh, disputing that today on his plane as he arrived uh, in Guam. 
he said that Americans should sleep soundly uh, at night. He said things that have, have not measurably changed to him. Uh, is it harder to keep track of this for you and your colleagues when you're not all in Washington? Do you, is there a disadvantage to not being there at this point? Well, obviously, if you're there, you've got immediate access to briefing from the Pentagon or the State Department, whoever you need to talk to. But actually, I sit on Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, and so this none of this really has come as a surprise, uh, including the, quote, updated intelligence, uh, you know, estimate of, of uh, North Korea's nuclear capability. Frankly, we've been being told for over a year in Congress that uh, the North Koreans would develop this kind of capability within President Trump's first term. So I think our Defense Department, State Department, have been thinking about this for quite a long time. And to be fair to them, they've kept uh, Congress well informed. So I, I see no particular disadvantage other than, you know, you get m- much more immediate information. But the reality is we've been warned this was coming for quite a while. You're on the Budget Committee as well. I think a lot of our listeners care a great deal about whether or not we meet uh, our funding obligations, what's going to happen with the with the debt ceiling. What's your sense of how all of that is going to proceed when you get back to Washington in early uh, September? Do you have a clear path forward from the White House? Uh, do, do you have a sense here that we're going to we're going to avoid a government shutdown, uh, that we're going to see that debt limit raised? I think we will avoid a government shutdown. I think we'll probably pass the budget pretty quickly after we get back in. It's out of the budget committee. It came out with a unanimous Republican vote. So that's a sign that things won't be too rough on the floor. Uh, all the appropriations committees are out of or appropriations bills are out of the appropriations committee. Four of them are across the floor. I expect the other eight. Uh, the debt ceiling will be trickier. It always is, uh, simply because uh, every administration, including this one, wants a clean debt ceiling. Every Republican Congress uh, says, right, we'll give it, uh, you a debt ceiling, but we want some sort of uh, uh, you know, change on the trajectory of the debt. We don't expect you to solve it in a single measure, but uh, we don't want to be in a situation where effectively uh, you know, it's like having a credit card and you hit the limit and you just raise the limit, but you keep spending at the same rate. So I think that will uh, be a point of some negotiation, but you'll have plenty of Democratic votes. Uh, They always are for a clean debt ceiling increase. So I always say this is a little bit like the perils of Pauline. You know, it always looks like the train is going to run over Pauline, but sooner or later, Pauline somehow magically slips out of it. Uh, And I think that's what will happen again in September. Does does he realize that 87 percent of the audience doesn't know who the perils of Pauline is? (laughs) <laughs> we got the illusion. We got the illusion. Uh, tax reform is also going to be on your agenda. We've, we've heard from the big six. I wonder if you think the process has been inclusive enough uh, thus far. Uh, I'm going to be talking to your colleague, Congressman Brady, tomorrow on, on Bloomberg Television about where things stand when it comes to, to tax reform. What's the, what's the lesson that you've learned uh, on the heels of the, the conversation about health care that you can apply to, to the conversation about tax reform? Well, I think the first lesson is that reconciliation is a very difficult process, and running the House by Senate rules, uh, particularly when the Senate couldn't follow through on its own, which it didn't on health care, uh, is a little tricky. On the other hand, I do think this has been a much more transparent <clears throat> process. Yeah. Uh, Chairman Brady's kept us all informed that we've had a release of common principles by the administration, the House, and the Senate. So my instinct is, uh, again, we, we've got to see the bill. I mean, right. uh, and we don't have some of the pay-fors we thought we would have in health care reform. Uh, obviously, the border adjustment tax is no longer an option here. So the real question is, if they're going to proceed yeah. under reconciliation, which has to be budget neutral, you know, what are the pay-fors going to be? I think we, we yeah. pretty much have a pretty clear understanding where they're going to go in 
in terms of uh, lowering rates and you know yeah. consolidating brackets and lower uh, corporate income tax and territoriality. But tell me how you're going to pay for it all. That's the piece that uh, we need to know. But again, they're working it. They've been transparent. So I think we have a good chance of getting there before the end of the year. And frankly, having failed on health care, it's absolutely essential that we succeed on tax reform. And I think that will focus a lot of Republican minds and uh, maybe make the conference a little more compliant than it was over the health care issue. Congressman, thank you so much. Thomas Cole is with the 4th District of Oklahoma, and we look forward to speaking to him again in our studios in Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.